This is all theater. This is all just political theater. Political theater. Political theater. Pure political theater. Theater. Political theater. The nefarious, significant, and protracted political, political, political theater for political theater's sake. I yield back. From Washington, this is Political Theater. Roll Call's review of the spectacle of politics on Capitol Hill and across the country. I'm Jason Dick. The weather outside might not be so frightful, but Congress's inability to do anything on time sure is. Here we are in December, and as usual, there is a mess of legislative business to attend to. That makes the most wonderful time of the year, at least on Capitol Hill, not so wonderful. It also begs the question, is working on Capitol Hill worth it? As the parties work furiously to recruit stars to run for the House and Senate in what will be a very consequential midterm election next year, what's the selling point? It can't be that the place is run efficiently or is even fun. Here to discuss today are Niels Lesniewski and Bridget Bowman. Niels is our chief correspondent here at CQ Roll Call, and Bridget is our senior political reporter. Welcome to you both. And I know that uh, I... I, when I see you together, I always think of that time when you covered the uh, Senate leadership together and were part of the WGDB blog. Thank you. Thank you. I'm, I'm sure. I hope. I hope you don't still have that cartoon lying around. <laughs> I think actually, my first week covering the Senate with Niels, they're on the brink of a government shutdown, like five years ago. So some things never change. <laughs> Niels, let's talk about everything that has to be done. We've got a continuing resolution that will just punt uh, spending decisions into February that Congress is considering, and even that is having a difficult time, you know, kind of getting over the finish line. We've got a debt ceiling to worry about a little bit later uh, this month. We have the annual defense authorization bill that sets policy for the Pentagon. And oh yeah, we have the big, uh, you know, build back better plan, the reconciliation package that contains, you know, so much of the president's policy priorities, and they want to get all this stuff done this month. Let's start with talking about the CR. Well, we, we are, we're uh, looking at the House having come up with a uh, continuing resolution proposal that will run until the middle of uh, February uh, that is expected to pass the House easily, but uh, it will eventually pass the Senate. Uh, but over in the Senate, there is a, a dispute going on that's been uh, primarily from several conservative Republicans, pro-Trump Republicans in particular, who want uh, to force uh, some sort of action to halt President Biden's uh, vaccine mandates uh, for, uh, be it for federal workers or large employers. There's a couple of different proposals floating around to halt the implementation of some OSHA regulations. Uh, Obviously, none of this is actually going to pass. None of these proposals to stop the president from doing what the president believes is in the best interest of public health is going to be signed into law by the president. That's not how that works. Uh, And so the Senate Republicans find themselves once again in, in what one might call and I hate to use the term, but someone might call it a box canyon where they have a a uh, situation that they can't get out of and the time uh, is running out before there's a shutdown. You know, at this point, I would not be surprised if there was one of those 
brief shutdowns that runs over a weekend and no one no one really notices except for the people who really do notice uh but i don't think there'll be any prolonged shutdown this time right because they'll eventually be able to do, I mean, even if they have to go through all of the senate procedures through a filibuster and so forth we're talking about three four days so you know maybe monday or tuesday but still the 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 bottom line is the fiscal year started October 1st <laughs> and they're still talking about not actually even funding it with you know their their priorities on both sides of the aisle uh, but just kicking it into a continuing resolution maintaining current spending levels for the most part there are some exceptions until February the middle of February which also just happens to be in the middle of you know their a scheduled break for them too right so it's just it seems like we are are here a, a lot. And I mean, Bridget, I wonder, I mean, you're, you know, you have, um, you've spent, you, you've transitioned from, you know, covering the leadership to covering campaigns, uh, you know, a, a few years back. When people are talking about running for office or they're, they're you know, they're, they're contemplating runs and so forth, and you're talking to people out there on the trail, does this come up a lot that this, I mean, people talk about dysfunction in Washington, but they, do they talk about like, do they seem to understand the very basic stuff that they just can't do on time ever? Yeah, it does seem, and sorry, my voice is a little raspy from a cold, um, but it does seem like the dysfunction in D.C. is affecting recruitment. Uh, we saw recently New Hampshire Governor Chris Sununu, who a lot of Republicans expected to run for Senate against Democrat Maggie Hassan. He came out and said he's not going to run for Senate, that basically the Senate doesn't look like a great place to be right now. He really criticized all of the obstruction. And, and I think that is something that you're seeing. You know, it's a really toxic environment at the Capitol as well. And we're seeing that with a number of Democrats who've decided decided to retire. Lawmakers often note that it's really tough to get things done. And is it at some point, you know, with traveling back and forth every week, it kind of wears on you. Um, but I, I will say that, you know, there hasn't, it hasn't seemed to totally dampened recruitment. We are seeing candidates across the map jump into these races, but it is something that that does come up. And Niels, one of the things you've been covering is when the president uh, goes on the road to sell some of the um, some of the legislation that they have passed, like the bipartisan infrastructure bill. Um, he usually, you know, is is there to to sort of help people who might be vulnerable or could use use a little boost. And that happened in New Hampshire right after uh, the governor, as as Bridget said, uh, Chris Nunu took a pass on on running against Maggie Hassan, who is considered vulnerable. Um, the president went up to New Hampshire and appeared with Maggie Hassan and and the 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 um, the Granite States to Democratic House lawmakers to talk about how they were going to fix bridges up in New Hampshire. Yeah, and this is this has become the recurring uh, theme of these uh, events. You know, the the reality is that the uh, Biden White House seems to be much better at staging events in coordination with the members of Congress from the places they are going. Um, there is sort of a, a better understanding than there certainly was in the, the Trump administration. If you remember, uh, President Trump would go and have these giant rallies uh, that sometimes would not be helpful to the 
candidates who were actually in the location where he was holding the rally. Sometimes it would be good if you were looking to get out the base, but then, you know, you would go, you would see places in swing districts where the local house member or local house Republican candidate would be not showing up or questioning whether or not they should be there or getting all these questions. If you're some, if you were someone like even not necessarily someone very conservative uh, or not moderate, but like Rob Portman would get questions about whether or not he was going to go to a Trump rally somewhere in Ohio, or Roy Blunt would get questions about whether or not he would go to something in Missouri with the, the then president. And then there was this weird, uh, Bridget can probably speak to this, but the the weird Iowa endorsement of Chuck Grassley for re-election that just sort of seemed uh, it, it did not seem like it was necessarily an event that that uh, Senator Grassley knew he needed to be there because he needed to get all the Trump supporters to vote for him in a primary and he needed to accept that endorsement. But that seemed like a bit of an oddity uh, seeing Chuck Grassley uh, while while, while uh, former President Trump was um, draining the swamp. Yeah. And to add to that, too, I think having an engaged White House on the campaign trail as talking to a number of Democrats recently about this, that that's a lesson learned from the 2010 midterms, where, you know, as we all remember, after Obamacare passed, um, Democrats were critical of the White House not being as engaged. I, I talked to one House Democrat who lost his race that year, and he said, said that was in part because of his health care vote. And he said they didn't have any air cover. But they see that as a change this cycle. Um, I talked to Senator Tim Kaine of Virginia, who ran the DNC in those midterms. And he said he's sure that Biden got an earful from members of Congress back then saying we need help out here. And, and so he, it's not a surprise to see Biden really engaging. And Democrats largely say they want to run on these policies and they're going to embrace them rather than run away from them. Yeah, and I mean the policies also. I mean have have pulled very well. I mean you know people do see. I mean they every time they you know break an axle in their in their car driving over a pothole or th have to think twice about whether you know the bridge that they're uh, going on from uh, you know from Kentucky to Ohio uh, is, is safe or not. I mean th th these these pull well, but they're also not. They're not. They don't have that visceral edge uh, that the Trump rallies had. I mean, like it, it's. I mean, and part of this, I think, is that you know Joe Biden came into office saying, "I'm going to calm things down, and I'm going to like get government back to what it's supposed to be doing," and and maybe that even means being a little boring. But does that get people to the polls in the same way that these these huge Trump rallies where people are like kind of they're? I mean, it's like they're like rock concerts almost. <laughs> yeah, that's a. This is kind of a a big challenge for Democrats when it comes to making sure their base is energized and turning out. And, you know, you mentioned the policies polling well. I've talked to Democratic strategists who are concerned that while the policies are polling well, Democrats aren't getting the credit for them yet and that they really need to bridge that gap in order to have any chance of keeping control of Congress. But as one strategist I talked to put it, you know, midterms tend to be about revenge and not about reward. So, if we're looking at typical history, the mid the first midterm of a president's administration is typically his party loses seats. 
So, but again, these are very atypical times that we're in. So you never know. I was, I was just going to say, <laughs> let's, let's define typical right. these days. <laughs> right. In these times, as, as we say. Um, so you never know, but I think Democrats certainly acknowledge it's going to be a tough, you know, a tough environment for them, but they think these policies can help. Niels, you spend, you know, a lot of time in our, our, you know, designated area in the White House and you have seen the way that like some members of the press will challenge the administration on vaccine mandates and their efficacy, you know, whether it's somebody at Fox News or, you know, it, but like it, it's not, these are also popular. The vaccine mandates also poll well, although you wouldn't know that from being on Capitol Hill. Um, do you think that is, have you seen any inclination that the White House might back down from that? Because it does, it seems like they, they think that they have the public on their side. They absolutely think they do have the public on their side, or they think they have enough of the public on their side, uh, that this does not seem like, uh, there's any chance of them backing down from the mandates. You know, as you were asking me that, I was thinking how, uh, at the briefing, uh, on Wednesday, uh, Press Secretary Jen Psaki said basically that there are Republicans who want to shut down the government so that 20% of the people can infect your kids with COVID. Um, it, was, it was messaging that we had not necessarily seen as much. Uh, while, you know, and the Democratic National Committee just came out with a uh, statement yesterday in which the headline was the same thing, basically. The, the headline on the, the DNC email yesterday was, Republicans threaten government shutdown in defense of COVID-19. Uh, and so it is clear that the messaging operation for the Democrats has decided uh, that um, what occurred in that Virginia governor's race with the arguments about uh, vaccine mandates, that that piece of it is not what was causing the voters to vote the way they did in Virginia, and that uh, clearly they think they have a win on um, the calling Republicans supporters of the coronavirus. <laughs> and and Bridget, I mean, the I have a feeling, you know, that like, you know, some of this is going to sort itself out. I mean, who knows with the coronavirus? I mean, we've seen this thing go a, a, a lot of different ways um, in, in the last few months. But, you know, assuming that we get a deal on appropriations, most people don't, you know, run campaigns based on like, I passed appropriations. <laughs> <laughs> um, and we will theoretically get a deal on the debt limit, which we frequently do. I mean, if, if they don't get one, we will all have much bigger problems to worry about than the, you know, than sort of uh, the political appearances. Um, and, you know, uh, other things that they're, they have on their list, like, you know, the defense authorization bill, like that, that all seems to come out in the wash. But, you know, this week in Washington, we've we've seen another thing that might be a big political uh, motivator on both sides of the aisle, and that's abortion. The Supreme Court heard the Mississippi, uh, 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 it's a court case that is challenging a Mississippi um, law restricting abortion to 15 weeks. It's considered a direct uh, challenge to Roe versus Wade. If you went by the Supreme Court yesterday, streets were blocked off. There were thousands of people protesting on both sides. Um, and that is one of those things, like if the, the Supreme Court's going to rule on this in June, mm -hmm. you know, I mean, like the, despite all the 
you know, sort of theatrics yesterday. So that's going to happen right in the middle of the midterm cycle. Do you think that this is one of those wild cards that could also change the trajectory of the midterm sort of calculus? Yeah, I do. I think it's going to be just really fascinating to see how it plays out. Like you said, with the decision coming maybe just a few months before voters head to the polls, this is an issue that energizes both parties' bases. Um, I think Democrats in particular see this as an issue that can help them win over particularly women in the suburbs who have been swing voters in the last couple of election cycles. But Republicans, too, see this issue as very energizing to their base as well. This is very polarizing politically, obviously, but there are also voters also tend to have very nuanced views about about this. And then, you know, if Roe versus Wade is struck down, does that mean that every candidate is going to have to answer questions about where are your limitations? How where would you draw the line? Like this could be something that really dominates the conversation and I mean, we are already so polarized, but it could send people even further to their partisan corners. Um, And we're just going to have to see how this plays out in the battlegrounds as well. Um, Democrats this week were pointing out that there are a handful of battleground states that if Roe is struck down, that would trigger abortion bans in those states, including Georgia and Arizona and Wisconsin. And so those are top Senate battlegrounds, top House battlegrounds. So, yeah, I think this could really shake shake up kind of what the midterms look like, depending on what happens in June. Niels, one thing that we haven't spent a lot of time talking about is the the reconciliation package. This is the um, sort of protected legislation. It averts a filibuster that is filled with like the last big tranche of the Biden agenda, uh, increased uh, money for paid leave, uh, and, you know, it, like the ability to to negotiate prescription drug prices, all things that are uh, popular and and it has hit another Senate um, sort of roadblock in the parliamentarian. We're sorting that out. I mean, as much as they say that, that you know, Chuck Schumer and, and Democratic leadership say they want to get this thing done by Christmas, do you think that there is any chance that they actually do this before the end of the year? I will say, yes, I think they're going to get it done before the end of the year, but I just don't know how much, to the point of the parliamentarian, I just don't know how how much uh, dialed back it is going to be. So you look at the package that passed the House, and even some of the broadly popular provisions, uh, one that comes to mind is an effort to sort of regulate or impose a cap on the price of insulin. Uh, which is is gotten completely, completely out of proportion, uh, that provision is probably not compliant with the uh, bird rule uh, in the Senate, which uh, limits the uh, inclusion of extraneous material that is not primarily about budgetary matters. Uh, and so the Reality is, is that there's going to have to be some discussion to be had with the House, and this is where I think it gets prickly, is convincing the House Democrats when this returns, which if I had to be a betting man would be, uh, well, Steny Hoyer, the House Majority Leader, announced that they're not coming back in January until the 10th. Uh, So my sort of assumption as to what that means is that they're actually planning as if they may end up having to be here between Christmas and New Year's to get the to meet the get this done by the end of the year deadline. 
uh, and then they'll take the then they'll take vacation after uh, New Year's. That would be my uh, that would be my guess as to what, how this may actually play out uh, with a more limited package than probably any of the House Democrats really want. Finally, at the end here, a point of personal privilege. Bridget Bowman has been a part of the CQ Roll Call newsroom for several years now. She started as an intern, worked her way up to a campus reporter, a Senate leadership reporter, and finally a political reporter. Uh, This will be her last podcast, at least as a member of this uh, newsroom, and uh, she'll have more to say at a later date about her destination. But I just want to say on you know, that she has been an invaluable colleague and a great person to work with. And I uh, have have really enjoyed our time together uh, and uh, wish her all the best. Oh, thank you. You're putting me on the spot and now I'm getting emotional, which is just going to, you know, make my raspy voice even better. Yeah, going to miss you. Uh, That is going to do it for this episode of Political Theater. We hope we didn't bum everybody (laughs) out too much about what a brutal December it's going to be. Uh, But the the plus side is that we will be helping make sense of it for you, we hope. Uh, So thanks for listening.